Um, wow, this is such a great sight. Um, I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Michael Chung. I am the pastor here at Indelible Grace Church. And the teaching text uh, we're going to look at today is in page four in your bulletin, so if you could look there. Um, it comes from the Gospel of Luke, and I'll read to you starting from page 30, um, sorry, starting from uh, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. When the Phar- now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this story is about who is close to God and who is far away. And Jesus tells us that the good, decent person is far away, and the evil, wicked sinner is close to God. That is a bombshell. That is revolutionary. And when you let the truth of that explode in your hearts and in your minds, it will utterly transform you. Now, this story, when it was first told, was shocking. It was radical. But you know what the problem is? It just doesn't have the same effect with us anymore, right? It just doesn't have the same bite. And I'll tell you why. Because the two main characters in this story, Simon and this woman, they mean something completely different to us. Well, who are these two characters? Uh, If we look at the woman first in verse uh, 37, the text tells us that she was a woman of the city. And that's just a polite way to say at the time, she was a prostitute. And Simon, Simon is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. So here you have these two characters, a prostitute and a religious leader. And those two people mean something completely different in our culture and in our time than it did back in that time. You know, think about the woman, right? 
don't we sort of imagine her to be this, uh, this prostitute with a heart of gold, right? And she's out there working the streets, not for herself, not because she wants to, but to support her three young children, right? She's a deeply sympathetic character. And Simon, the religious leader, aren't we deeply suspicious of him? Don't we sort of imagine him to be this dark and sinister fellow? But you see, that's not how the ancient world saw these two people. Can I just retell the story in modern terms? All right, first the Pharisee. You see, the Pharisee was deeply respected in their community. They were seen as these forces of good. They were men of integrity. So I want you to imagine, and here I'm going to give you the modern equivalent, okay? I want you to picture in your minds a community activist. You know, this is a guy who in his spare time volunteers at the local soup kitchen. He works for a nonprofit. He cares for the environment. He composts. He drives a Prius. We like this guy, right? We admire this guy. And what about the prostitute? You see, in the ancient world, she was universally reviled. She was seen as this destroyer of communities, someone who preyed on the weaknesses of others. She was the embodiment of evil. And so I want you to picture in your mind, okay, this is the equivalent, a drug dealer or a child molester, someone who we would say is disgusting, someone who we would say is pure evil. And this story is asking us, of these two characters, who is closer to God? And Jesus says, the drug dealer, the child molester. And when that answer shocks you, when it repulses you the way it did to the original hearers, then you understand. Then you're really listening to Jesus the way his contemporaries did. Okay, So this is foundational. We have to understand who these two characters are before we can understand the rest of the story. All right. So let's go into the story. Um, and I'm going to look at it in three parts. Uh, and so here's my outline. First, we're going to look at this banquet setting. And then we're going to look at the, the parable of the two debtors. And then um, we're going to look at the very end. Jesus turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. We're going to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean uh, in light of the story? Okay. So first, uh, the banquet setting. Uh, and here, Simon and the women are being contrasted. Right? They have very different emotional responses to Jesus. You know, Simon, he's cool and reserved. But the woman, she's intense devotion, right? And the reason why they have such radically different emotional responses, and this is very key, is because of the way that they relate to God, because of the way they approach God, okay? So let's take a look at that. First, Simon. Now, Simon is interested in Jesus. This is why he invited, Simon, uh, this is why he invited Jesus to the banquet, right? He's intrigued, but he only wants a conversation. He doesn't want to lose control. He keeps his emotions constantly in check. But what about the woman? Completely the opposite, right? She is overwhelmed with emotion. She gives herself entirely over to Jesus. And it's worth looking at in detail what she does, right? Because the story does. And I want you to see here just the lavish devotion that she pours out on Jesus. So it starts out, the story tells us that um, she's standing there at Jesus' feet, um, behind him. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people didn't eat at tables, right, like in the modern sense, right? But in the ancient world, the tables were down near the floor, and the guests would sort of eat 
reclining with one arm on a cushion and the other free hand, they would, they would eat the food, right? And their feet would be uh, radiating out away from the table like spokes on a wheel. So do you have that picture in mind, okay? So the woman is there, and she's standing behind Jesus at his feet, and she begins to weep. Just tears start to flow down. And with her tears, she washes Jesus' feet. And then she does the most extraordinary thing. She uses her own hair to wipe his feet clean. Now, in the ancient world, um, women always wore their hair up in public. And the reason why is because, you know, the environment very dusty. You, you don't want to get that in your hair. And the only time a woman would let down her hair is in the privacy of her home. And this text tells us that this woman, she let down her hair and she cleans Jesus' feet with her own hair. And you can see there just an incredible act of vulnerability and surrender, just such a tenderness and just such an intimacy, right? And then the woman kisses his feet. Now, here's the thing. The feet were the most uh, dirtiest part of the body, right? People in the Middle East would walk around dusty roads with sandals, right? This, you know, their feet were disgusting. They were gross. This is why you kept the feet as far away from the food as possible, right? But this woman, she kisses Jesus not on the cheek, not on the hands, which would have been, conven- would have, which would have been convention, but she kisses him at his feet. She stoops down. And she's showing Jesus just her abject humility. And then finally, the most breathtaking detail of all, she pours ointment on Jesus. Now, the story tells us that she brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment. And, you know, what is this ointment? Well, it was a, it was a kind of perfume, very expensive, very rare. And almost certainly this flask represented for the, the woman her entire life savings, right? Women at the time, you know, they didn't store their wealth at the bank. There were no banks. And so you would buy a flask and you would fill it with ointment. And she pours out this perfume on, notice again, not his head, which we, we might expect, but she pours it out on his feet, which sort of magnifies the honor, right? Because she's saying, in essence, all that I have, all that I own, Oh, Lord, I do not consider worthy for you. And so I want you to see then just an ex- this extravagant, lavish devotion that this woman gives out to Jesus. And why does she do this? Jesus tells us that she had been listening to Jesus. And she understood that her many sins were forgiven. And she is just overwhelmed with emotion. She's just filled with gratitude and filled with joy. Why? Because of her new understanding of her relationship with God. But what about Simon? Simon's watching this whole scene in absolute horror. Why? Remember, the woman is a prostitute. Now, to us, you know, we're thinking prostitute with a heart of gold, right? But to the audience there, she was absolute evil, right? And so the Simon is saying to Jesus, Jesus, where is your outrage? Why don't you condemn this woman? You act like you accept her. Don't you know all the evil things that she's done? Now, why is, um, why is Simon outraged? What well, has to do with the way that he approaches God? You see, he related to God not as someone who is forgiven, but as someone who
who has an exemplary moral record, right? He related to God on the basis of his virtue, on the basis of his good life. And therefore, he told himself, that makes me someone who is accepted. That makes me closer to God, and that makes this prostitute far, far away from God. And Jesus, you act like you accept her. You need to explain yourself. I want an answer. So that's the first point. And the second point, then, is the parable. So Jesus tells this little story. Now, you know, I've been um, studying this passage. You know, I've been preparing for it. I've been really soaking in the story. And you know what strikes me? It's just how brilliant Jesus is. You know, just his response. Because he refutes Simon, but he does it in such a way. I mean, he tells this story in which at first it seems like he's going along with what Simon believes. But then in the middle... There's this dramatic twist, and everything is turned upside down. Everything is reversed. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Jesus says there was a certain moneylender, a certain creditor, and this creditor had two debtors. One debtor owed him the enormous amount, 500 denarii. The other debtor owed him a mere 50 denarii. Now, the reason why this story is so brilliant, right, is because this perfectly captured Simon's worldview. You see, think of sin as a debt. And every time you sin, every time you break God's rules, you go deeper and deeper into debt. And so Simon says, therefore, the small debtor, the one who breaks God's laws the least, is closer to God. And the one who is the big debtor, who is constantly breaking the rules, is far, far away from God. Right? This is how the metaphor works. Okay, imagine this. You have two friends. One friend owes you a mere $20. Let's say you're going out to dinner one day, and uh, he forgot to bring his wallet, so he says, hey, can, I, can you spot me some cash? And so you say, sure, no problem. One-time deal, he owes you a small debt. The other friend, constantly borrowing money from you. And because of his financial irresponsibility, because of his foolish spending habits, he is in deep. He owes you thousands and thousands of dollars. And he's constantly coming. Every day, every week, he's saying, can I borrow some more money? And he's one of those friends that even though he owes you all that money, he still goes out and he buys an iPad. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? Right? You see, Simon loved this story. Simon loved this story because he's saying, you know, the woman is the big debtor, Right? She's constantly breaking God's rules. She's constantly violating God. But I'm the small debtor. You know, once in a while, it's true, I'll slip up. Maybe on occasion, I'll tell a little lie, or maybe um, my anger will get the best of me. But on the whole, I have kept my debt at a manageable level. And therefore, doesn't, doesn't, that make, doesn't that put me in a better relationship with God than this prostitute, right? But Jesus says... Hold on. Simon, I haven't finished the story yet. So Jesus says, so there were these two debtors. Now neither debtor could pay. And so the creditor says, I will forgive both debts. And then Jesus says, Simon, which of these two debtors is closer to God? In other words, which of these two debtors is, loves God more? And, and, and I love this answer. Simon, he cannot help 
but to uh, recognize the obvious answer. But he's so reluctant, you know? And in verse 43, he says, um, he says, the one, I suppose, who owes the bigger debt. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's completely flipped the results, right? He's completely reversed the results. Simon thought that as a small debtor, he was close to God, and that as the prostitute, as a big debtor, was far, far away from God, but it's the exact opposite. You know, let's go back to our illustration. Let's say you go to your two friends and you say to them, it's cool, you don't owe me the money anymore, I forgive the debt. How are they going to respond to you? The friend who is in deep, who owes you thousands and thousands of dollars, he will be thrilled, right? He'll be jumping up and down. He'll say, you can't imagine what an enormous stress and pressure that debt was to me. And now you see I don't owe you the money. He'll be hugging you. He'll be kissing you. But what about that other friend? The friend who owes you a mere 20. You say, debt is forgiven. You don't have to pay me back. And the friend will say, uh, thanks, right? What, is, what does this mean for us? What is Jesus telling us? This is revolutionary. Because Jesus is telling us, if you want to draw close to God, you need to love him as a big debtor. You need to give him big debtor love. In other words, you need to identify with the drug dealer, with the child molester. You need to see yourself as this hopeless criminal. But if you approach God, if you say to God, hey, I'm a good, decent guy. I slip up maybe once in a while. If you come to him as a small debtor with your small debtor love, then God will reject that. Now, I know what I said was an astonishing thing. But look at the story. Jesus turns to the woman, and does he rebuke her? Does he say to her, hey, why did you rack up this enormous moral debt? No, he commends her. He says, this is good, this is beautiful, this is right. And then he turns to Simon, and he says, but what you have done is not right. What you have done is not good. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, hold on. Are you saying that it is wrong to be a small debtor? That it's bad to be a small debtor? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Actually, Jesus is saying something far more mind-bending, far more crazy. Okay, listen very carefully. Jesus is saying there is no such thing as a small debtor. There is no such thing as a small debtor. But you're saying, but, 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 Jesus said small debtor in the story. What do you mean there's no such thing as a small debtor? Well, remember, Jesus is telling this story not as he understands or not as, not as it is, but he's saying, Simon, this is what you think. Think this through with me, okay? Don't lose me now. Think this through with me. If there is such a thing as a small debtor, and Simon is a small debtor, then shouldn't it be fine that Simon loves Jesus little, right? This woman, she's emotional. She's all intense and gushy. Why? She's got a lot of debt to be forgiven. But Simon, he's got tepid love. He's reserved. But it's proportional, right? Is that what Jesus says? No. Look at the story. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, why didn't you get all emotional over me? Why didn't you cry and hug me and kiss me and pour out expensive perfume on me? And you can sort of imagine this conversation, right? Simon is like, you're kidding me, right? 
You want me to kiss you? You want me to um, let down my hair for you? You want me to get all emotional over you? And Jesus is saying, that's exactly right. Yeah. What is Jesus saying? What is the, impl- what is the implication? There is no such thing as a small debtor. Complete fiction. Right? There are only big debtors. There are only big debtors. Now, you're saying, how can Simon be a big debtor, right? Or in other words, how can it be that a good, decent person, and I want you to picture in your mind, community activist, how can this good guy be in as much moral debt as the drug dealer and the child molester, right? Well, this is going <laughs> to... This is really going to cook you a noodle, okay? We're, we're really swimming in the deep end now, okay? There are two ways to be a debtor. There are two ways to be a debtor. You can, you can be a debtor by breaking all the rules, and you can be a debtor by keeping all the rules. Okay, you can be a debtor by breaking all the rules, and you can be a debtor by keeping all the rules. It has to do with how you define sin. How does Jesus define sin? You know, do you want the basic uh, Bible definition of sin. Okay, so here's sin. Well, first let me say uh, what sin is not. Sin is not merely the breaking of rules. Because if that is the case, then Simon is right, and he is a small debtor. But then why, what does Jesus complain against Simon? Right? So that definition is not encompassing enough. All right? So here's the definition. Here's what Jesus says. Sin is independence from God. Sin is not putting God at the center of your life, as he should be, He is our creator. We were made to be in relationship with him. But instead, sin is putting at the center your own desires, your own pleasures, your own interests, and pushing God to the side. And there are two ways to be independent from God. One way to break free from God is you break all the rules, right? You say, God's laws are there to keep me from having fun. God's laws cramp my style. So forget those things. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to break all the rules. And you can break free from God by keeping all the rules. Because when you keep all the rules, that means you don't need God's mercy. This is why Simon is so cool and detached with Jesus. Because all of his life, he had kept the rules. And he didn't need God's mercy. Imagine a son, and this son hates his father. This son cannot stand his father. So what does he do? He hunkers down. He studies hard. He never stays out too late. He never gets into trouble. He goes to college, and he gets a high-paying professional job. Why? So that he will never have to depend on his father ever. You see, this son follows all the father's rules, but not as an expression of his love for his father, but in order to be free from the father. You see, Jesus is telling us, it doesn't matter whether you are an irreligious rebel criminal type or whether you're a religious, you know, good, decent type. You're both lost. You're both big debtors. You see, this is the essence of Christianity. Is Christianity about being a good person? Is it about being a, you know, a moral person? Is it about being you know, a small better? You know, what are some of the popular images of Christians out there? 
Ned Flanders, right, from The Simpsons. He is this stickler for the rules, right? He never does anything wrong. He's basically like this overgrown Boy Scout, right? Or what about Angela from The Office? I bet a lot of you didn't know that her character is a Christian. It's true. And, you know, she is this, you know, this prim and proper person. And she's always like, look frowning on people in disapproval, right? And she is the most anal retentive, rule obsessed person on the show. And of course, she's a rank hypocrite. And she's the Christian, right? She's the Christian on the show. Is that what Christianity is? Is Christianity a small better club? Absolutely not. Christianity is a big debtor religion. It's for the criminals. It's for the drug dealers. It's for the child molesters. It's for the murderers and the rapists. And it's for those of you who know that there is no difference between the person sitting on death row and yourself. Because you know that the same evil, twisted heart resides in both. You see, this is Christianity. Christianity is a big debtor religion. It's for the miserable flameouts. It's for the absolute moral failures. Christianity is a big debtor religion. Can I just throw out a challenge to you? Um, I know that many of you here today um, do not consider yourselves Christians. Or maybe you know, you're not sure. Maybe you're in between. And I just want to say once again that we are so happy to have you. Um, we're so appreciative for your presence. But um, let me throw out a challenge, okay? Let, let, me, uh, let me just throw this out there for your consideration. Maybe, maybe the reason why you're not a Christian is because you consider yourself to be a small debtor. But don't you see, Christianity is for the big debtors. And so that's what this uh, story is telling us. This is the challenge of Jesus' parable what kind of debtor are you? So that's point number two, the parable of the two debtors. And then my third and final point is Jesus forgives the debt. Now, at the very end of the story, Jesus turns to the woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Right, in verse 48. And I should say very quickly now, um, why are her sins forgiven? Is it because she loved a lot? No, okay, if you look at verse 47, it's, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. In other words, um, her love, I mean, her, sin, her, her forgiveness is the result, no, no, is the cause of her, yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm getting so confused, all right. Her, um, her forgiveness causes her love, right? It's not the result of her love, right? I probably lost you all because I got all confused, but let me, I need to say that very quickly. All right. So anyways, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone in the room is stunned. Right? Look at verse 49. They all say, who is this who even forgives sins? Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I am the third person in the parable. I am the creditor. And as the creditor... I forgive the debt. By the way, this is a claim to divinity, right? Jesus says, I forgive the debt. You see, think about how debt works. Does debt just disappear into thin air? No, right? When the creditor forgives the debt, he is saying, I will absorb the cost. I will pay the cost. And so when Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, he is saying to her, 
I will die on the cross to pay your debt. Now, I know at this point, a lot of you say, this is the part of Christianity I really don't like, or I really don't get. You know, why can't God just forgive? Why does there have to be this bloody death on the cross? And here's the answer. There is no such thing as forgiveness without paying a cost. Okay, there's no such thing as, paying, uh, as forgiveness without paying the cost. I mean, let me give you this illustration. Suppose I loan you my car. You know, let, let's say you want to go on a day trip. And uh, so I loan you my car. And you come back and you say to me, bad news, I totaled your car. Now someone has to pay, right? Either you have to pay by giving me a new car or the cash equivalent, or I have to pay by buying myself a new car, or at least I have to just go without, right? I have to start walking. But somebody has to pay. And when I say I forgive you, what I am saying is I, as the car owner, will pay. And so this is the gospel. Jesus is saying, I will pay. You see, we owed this enormous debt, this huge sin debt, and either we pay or God will pay. And the Bible tells us that the penalty for sin, the payment for sin, is death, is hell. And God is saying, I will pay the debt. And he pays the debt by sending his son, his divine beloved son, who lived the perfect life. I mean, Jesus is the only one. He is the only one who truly kept God's law, not in order to break free from the Father, but as an expression of his love for the Father. He's the only one who was perfectly compassionate. He was perfectly loving. He was perfectly good. But then he was condemned falsely. And then he was crucified on a Roman cross. And he did this in order to pay our debt. You see, the gospel is not that we can pay the debt. That somehow, you know, by our good effort, you know, by our good works and just our moral living, somehow we can make it up. Notice that in the story, Jesus says what? Neither debtor could pay. But the gospel is that Christ has paid. And when you believe that, when you trust that you are accepted by God, not because of your righteousness, but because of what Christ has done for you, not only are your sins forgiven, but you will be transformed. You'll be given what the New Testament says is a new life. You'll become like this woman in the story, right? Filled with love, filled with joy, and absolutely humble. Because you'll never be able to, you know, look at someone else with your moral superiority and say, I am better than you. You know why? Because you're a big sinner, and you know it. So this is the gospel, that you are more sinful than you can possibly imagine. You are more sinful than you can possibly imagine, but you are more loved in Jesus Christ than you can dare, ever dare hope. That's the gospel. And uh, that's the end. And uh, I should say here, I, I want to I I just pause just for a moment. I want to say something about our new church. Uh, as you all know, we're launching a new church. And... Um, you know, why are we doing this? Well, a big part is to proclaim the gospel. Right? We want to declare the mercies of Christ, the glory of God in Christ. And uh, I want to tell all of you who are guests and visitors here, um, I'm, I'm not talking about you know, the well-wishers. We have many well-wishers here. You're already connected to a church. But for those of you who do not have a church, 
Um, and maybe you're intrigued. Maybe you'd like to hear more. I want to invite you to come again next week um, and throughout the month. And we're going to continue to explore what does it mean? What does the gospel mean? What has Christ done for us? You know, what is our situation? Because by no means have I even remotely exhausted the gospel. There's so much more, okay? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how great a salvation we have in you that you did not leave us to perish in our debt, but you forgave us through the sacrifice of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would just open up our eyes so that we can see our true spiritual poverty as we truly are and how desperately we need you. And Lord, I pray for the church. Lord, I pray just for your tender mercies. I pray that you would make us bold to proclaim your gospel. I pray that... Um, you would knit us into this gospel-centered community of love and service and that we would be a blessing in the community uh, for the peace and prosperity of the East Bay. We pray all this humbly in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.